Opalacha presents Centennial of Creepiness. Three tales of mid-century twisty terror. It's like tales from the crypt, but worse. Dell and Joe Froley were twin brothers. Identical ones. The entire plot of this story depends on it. Once they were grown, Joe moved to Pittsburgh for work, while Dell stayed around North Fork for pleasure. With their neighbor, Lanny Kaiser, who naturally agreed to marry him when her Church of Christ preacher father caught them at it. Dell inherited the family farm at the head of Plank Hollow after Ma and Pa Froley died under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> mysterious Circumstances was a 1954 RKO Pictures mystery film starring Sterling Hayden. It was showing at the Rayburn Drive-In the night the movie screen fell over and fatally crushed Ma and Pa Froley. They may or may not have been necking. Joe took to visiting Dell and Laney every so often. He would ride a bus down from Pittsburgh to the county seat of Bowensville, where Dell would pick him up and take him home. One visit, the last visit, the visit something actually interesting happened. Joe asked Dell if he would go with him to their late grandfather, Louis Henry Froley's grave. The old man had been buried all by his lonesome, with the aid of friendly neighborhood gravediggers, of course, on a cleared knoll on the ridgeline in the hills behind the family farm. Laney decided to join Dell and Joe on their excursion. She even packed them all a picnic. It would have been only a half an hour's hike, but this was the age of ubiquitous tobacco usage, so it was more like 45 minutes once you added in the fits of coughing and the hacking up of white styrofoam-like material. The gravesite, once they reached it, was in pitiful condition. The tombstone was badly faded from sun damage, and the grass was knee-high not only in places, but also in people and things. No one had come to pay their respects here since Ma and Pa Froley had died, or so Dell assumed. And it would have been a safe assumption, too, were it not for the shovel that he spotted laying on the far side of the tombstone. Would you look at that? Some damn fool brought a shovel all the way up here and left it. He turned smiling and saw Lanny holding the lid of her picnic basket open for his brother Joe, who reached inside. It was me. I brought it up here last night while you were sleeping. Then Joe pulled out what Lenny had packed him. It wasn't a sandwich. It was a hammer. What are you going to nail up here? You, you dummy. True to his word, Joe hit his twin brother in the head with that hammer over and over again until Dell finally fell down, kicked a little, and eventually died. Joe set the hammer down and picked the shovel up. There was no time to waste, especially the time of our intelligent and generally attractive listening audience. It was going to be an awful lot of work to disinter his late grandfather's coffin, put his twin brother's body inside, and then rebury the thing. As he dug, Joe and Lanny went over their plan again, as villains sometimes do at convenient breaks in the narrative. First, I'll drive Dale's truck back north so the neighbors think he took me home this time. We'll have our scarecrow with your hat over its head in the passenger seat, so it looks like you're sleeping off a drunk. You know, like usual. I figure I might even actually go all the way up to Pittsburgh. Just to get the timing right. Dump that scarecrow somewhere along the way and come back. Hey, I put a lot of work into that scarecrow. You can build you another. But he's wearing my great uncle Handy's coveralls. Then put him in a pair of Dales, woman. I'd have to add a little more stuffing. Handy was a real thin feller. It's tough to overeat with just the three fingers. There's something you're forgetting, though. What? Joe Froley don't ever come back down to Bowen County. Dale Froley does. That's right, in it? I gotta keep that in mind. I am my brother now, for all anyone else will know, owing to our remarkable genetic resemblance. On account of you being identical twins and all. 
Having reached the bottom of the grave, Joe cleared the earth from the lid of the coffin before he flung the shovel aside. Hand me that hammer now, will you? The hammer you killed Dale with? Did you pack more than one hammer, Laney? No. Then yeah, the hammer I killed Dale with. Do I have to, Joe? I killed a man, I dig the grave, and you won't even hand me a little bitty sure I bashed my brother's brains in with it hammer. Talk about ungrateful. But it's got blood on it. You listen here, Laney, and you listen well, because I will not say this twice, unless my old childhood stutter kicks back in from the stress of murder my brother. You do not want me to have to get out of this here grave. Laney worked up the nerve to grab the hammer by its handle and toss it underneath to Joe. She was sorry when he caught it with his hands instead of with his front teeth. Joe bent low and pried the rusted nails of the old coffin lid loose. And he climbed all the way out of the grave and laid down so that his arms dangled back into its mouth. From that prone position, he dug the back of the hammer into the sill and yanked the coffin lid open. Joe Frawley had expected to find a pile of bones, perhaps. Not the living corpse of his late grandfather reaching out to seize him around the throat. <coughs> the mummy's time-cracked lips burst open in a flurry of dead man dust. Didn't I always tell you to play nice with your brother? Shortly thereafter, the scream died when she did. It took several days for the nearest neighbors of Dell and Laney Froley to realize that they were missing. The Bowen County Sheriff was notified and a search party soon formed. During the subsequent search, a deputy just happened to climb the hill where Lewis Henry Froley was buried. He found nothing there beyond one solitary and long, undisturbed grave. Roy Wells heard the whistle blow out in the lumberyard and knew that since he hadn't been the one to blow it, and it was also neither the beginning nor the end of the workday, it spelled trouble. When he stepped outside his office, he saw that most of the men in the yard were gathered around the sawmill. An odd, prolonged, but low-pitched moan swept from the circle of working men. Ow! Roy reckoned more than lumber had been cut that day. Legway! The last time Roy had seen Fred Johnson, the other man had been pulling boards away from the saw. Now Fred held a bloody handkerchief wrapped tight around his left hand. Georgie Hall bent over Fred. His left boot was uncomfortably close to another handkerchief that lay open on the ground. In its gory center sat the other half of Fred's finger. I slipped, boss. I guess I done went and pinched my last rear end. That was on your left index finger, Fred. There are other combinations of fingers you can use to squeeze a rear end. But I'm left-handed, Mr. Wells. It just won't be the same. Don't worry, Fred. You'll pinch again. Dergie's going to take you down to Doc Bradley's to get you doctored up. Milford, you go with him. Milford Stevens helped Georgie help Fred to his feet. Together, they led the wounded man away. Don't forget my finger now. All the men gathered around the sawmill looked down at the digit in question. None of them dared volunteer to pick it up. I'm the man in charge, ain't I? Thought Roy, and he reached for it. A couple of the other men followed suit, but were, conveniently, slower about it. Roy folded the ends of the handkerchief around the digit before he touched it. Then he didn't know who to give it to. Georgie, Milford, and Fred either had their hands full or else terribly, terribly maimed. So Roy did the only other thing he could think of. 
He stuffed the half-finger in Fred Johnson's overhaul bib pocket. Its ruined end peeked above the rim like some chewed-up cigar. Much obliged, Mr. Wells. Roy watched the three men cross the lumber yard towards the dirt shoulder between the train tracks and the highway. Mac, you and Jake work the saw. Ain't nothing we can do about it here. We best all get back to work now. Once he reached his office, Roy closed the door behind him, sat back at his desk, and buried his head in his hands. In the corner of his room was a safe. The $346 that had been in the safe when he arrived were now stacked on Roy's desk. Beside the money was a pile of receipts and a scratch pad that was riddled with figures and computations, as well as hasty cross-outs and try-that-math-agains. Roy Wells only had a fifth-grade education. But it don't take no rocket scientist. And hopefully that term was in common usage by 1956 to know I'm plumb broke. It was the disaster at the Rayburn Drive-In that had done it. A drive-in theater on the outskirts of town had been more than a good idea. It had been a genuine money maker. Until the night the movie screen fell over and crushed an old farmer and his wife getting frisky for the first time since the war. It had not been built to code, the insurance man claimed. The wood backing was rotten, the concrete foundation watered down, and the nails old enough to have been recycled from the crucifixion. Now Roy was nearly drowning in lawsuits and court fees and bulk popcorn butter that was turning increasingly stagnant. And now here's another hit to my insurance and reputation for safe working conditions. I'm going to be ruined. What I wouldn't give for a $1,000 nest egg right now. As if on cue, or as if some lazy and balding in two places rider had failed to think of a more clever transition. Just a moment. Roy put the money and the receipts back in the safe, closed it, and then turned its combination at random. You can come on in now. It was no one Roy Wells knew. The stranger wore a dark suit and sported a beard cropped into what might have been, in other places, considered a fashionable goatee. The man didn't so much as nod at Roy before he took the liberty of closing the door behind him. Can I help you, mister? Actually, Mr. Wells, I'm here to help you. You don't happen to be in the bulk popcorn butter business, do you? No, but I have popped a few kernels in my time. And I don't know if I want your help. I believe you will. In fact, I'm willing to bet on it. As much as, say, $1,000? Roy Wells didn't know what a goosebump was supposed to feel like, but he was pre-diabetic enough to recognize a sweat bee sting when he got one. What is it you want? It's not about what I want. It's about what you want. What you would like. What would ease your troubled mind. Whole heaps of money. Exactly. Pure, unadulterated, capitalistic gain. I'm here to offer you a business deal that if you take it, will make you rich. Alright, what's the deal? Oh, a man like you probably wouldn't be interested. Oh no, I'm all perked up about it. Trust me, in several sections. I fear you may find it slightly morally disagreeable. Brother, I cut ethical corners like some men cut wind. I don't even shift the other cheek. Still, you may not care for who you would be dealing with. They're not commies, are they? No. Then I'm still interested. Who would I be making this lucrative yet mysterious business arrangement with? The devil, of course. Dun, dun, dun. Did Eugene set you up to this? Where's that no good layabout been laying out? Your brother did not send me. This is no practical joke. I'm quite serious. Yeah, right. That's when a coiled rattlesnake materialized on his desk. My mama used to tell me the devil was standing in the room any time I started to touch myself. Where are you? Do you see my little pecker? I see that I've made my point. 
With that, the snake vanished. Roy sighed, blinked, and looked up at the devil. His skin was now as red as a fire truck in a Technicolor Hollywood musical. He had horns, too. You would make a killing in the bulk popcorn butter business. I do. It's called congestive heart failure. I'm impressed, all right, but I still ain't going to sell you my soul. I'm going to be bad all over, but I'm good with the Lord, and I intend to be resurrected some fine day. I don't want your soul, Mr. Wells. Then what is it you want? Simply this. Five more fingers. I'm going to need more explanation than that. Five fingers that are to be cut off seemingly by accident by the blade of your sawmill. In exchange for this, I will make you the biggest man in Bowen County. I don't understand. I know you only have a fifth grade education, but I thought I made it clear enough. No, I understand your terms. I just don't get what you want five fingers for. That's none of your concern. Rest assured, though, I have places to put them. In hell. Like for decoration? Your mortal mind could never guess what I intend to use them for. Take a torture? Do you want to be richer, don't you? Sure, but it's a lot to consider. Maybe this will help you make up your mind. The stranger gestured, and a small but substantial stack of bills appeared on the desk. Roy counted through them. It added up to exactly $1,000. You can keep that, even if you turn down my overall offer. Consider it proof of my supernatural ability. Oh, you had me convinced at nearly soiling my britches back there. Roy tapped the stack of money on the desk as if it was a deck of cards. Just five fingers, huh? That's all. I mean, no one would think twice about it. This is dangerous business, Lumber. Heck, that saw already took a finger and a thumb, and that was before today. I'm afraid I won't be able to grandfather in the results of any previous sawmill accidents. I insist on payment with five fresh fingers. Still, what are five more? Assuming you take them one at a time, and here and there? Let us assume. What is that old saying? That time-honored aphorism? That cliche that if I can only remember it now might save me a whole heap of trouble down the road? Oh yeah, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Roy held out his right hand. You got yourself a deal, mister. The devil's handshake would have felt like touching the forehead of a sick child to Roy. If Roy had a child that he neglected less than the two children he actually had. Uh, is there any paperwork we need to fill out? That won't be necessary. I only go into legalese with city slickers. Out here in, dare I say it, God's country, a handshake deal should suffice. The stranger stood. Our arrangement is complete. And final. Tomorrow, $50,000 will be deposited into your bank account. More shall arrive after that on a monthly basis. You should be a millionaire by Christmas. You know, I tell myself that every single year. Well, this year it will be true. Farewell, Roy Wells. May you have no regrets without due reward. Did you mean to be especially sinister when you said that? Or is that just your typical demeanor and tone? The stranger had already vanished as rapidly and completely as the rattlesnake had. Thankfully, the $1,000 remained. That evening, Roy Wells left his lumberyard in strong, if not quite good, spirits. He did not get in his car to drive home because he lived in the house on the other side of the highway. Before dinner, Roy helped himself to a little whiskey he kept stashed in the old smokehouse by the garage. was partly to blame for the toast he gave his wife and two children. It takes more than hard work to make it, people. It takes guts. It takes brains. It even takes blood. But hopefully someone else's. <laughs> After he finally drifted off to sleep, Roy Wells dreamed he was standing in the parlor of his future mansion. 
There were fine and expensive things all around, but his attention was drawn to the most majestic object of all. It was a solid gold tree trunk. The trunk was as wide as a grand piano. Its surface shined brightly. Below, on a wooden placard, a nameplate read, Roy V. Wells, biggest man in Bowen County. Roy spotted a smudge on the surface of the trunk. Only one hand was truly fit to touch it, his own. Roy pulled out a clean white handkerchief that was already damp with polish. He pressed the cloth against the trophy. For a moment it felt as smooth as the wax floor of a gymnasium. Then the filling turned as sharp as if he had jammed his hand straight into the heart of a briar patch. Roy Wells awoke screaming. In the soft light of the sawmill, he watched himself continue feeding his right hand through the teeth of the running blade. His fingers flew apart like fleshy wood chips. The shock was just too much for him. Roy collapsed on the sawmill floor. He probably would have bled to death if his oldest son Harry hadn't snuck out to the smokehouse that night to help himself to a little of his father's whiskey. A week was the earliest that Doc Bradley would allow Roy to travel. He convinced his wife to drive him to the bank. He had more trouble convincing her to wait in the car. I don't want you to push yourself too hard, Roy. Well, I wouldn't worry about that. Between you and Doc Bradley, I'll be lucky to push a turd out on my own. There was a line at the window, but Roy didn't have to wait. The bank president came out to greet him personally. That's when Roy was certain that the devil had indeed kept his word. He had to be rich. I would like to see it. Every last cent. Of course, Mr. Wells. This way, please. The banker led Roy into the safety deposit room and asked him to take a seat. Roy watched them bring in his money, $50,000 worth. Would you care to make a withdrawal today? Yeah, 1000 bucks. Transfer another 5000 to the company. The rest will keep in your care. The banker took that statement in with all the decorum of an undertaker who has just been told by a grieving widow that the only coffin fit for her late husband is the most expensive one. Also, we can screw if you like. The banker blushed as he counted out $1,000 and scribbled Roy Wells a slip. By the way, Mr. Wells, everyone here at the bank was sorry to hear about your terrible sleepwalking accident. Roy started to reach for the money with his right hand, but caught himself and used his left instead. He lowered his right out of sight below the edge of the table. Not one of its fingers had escaped the saw teeth intact. Not even the thumb. Well, could have been worse. Could have been ten. The old, young house overlooked the community of Hamtown for more than seventy years. The last fifty of them, it stood empty, decrepit, and reputedly, oh, so haunted became a rite of passage for the youth who lived on Cheney Creek to venture into that eerie abode. Some saw a woman in white, others the ghost of old man young, a few nothing. One night in the fall of 1956, around the stroke of my great-grandfather and also midnight, a pickup truck bumped along the dirt road that wound up the hill to the house. Two teenage boys exited the truck with metallic medieval town crier bell-sized flashlights in tow. Their names? Unimportant. Their deeds? Unremarkable. 
their characterizations quite unnecessary. One of them wore glasses. He was a nerd. The other one had a soft pack of cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve. He was tough. Why were a nerd and a tough guy running around together? Because social groups are actually porous in practice, and people should not be judged for glasses on their face or cigarettes up their sleeve, but rather for the content that happened in the backstory the author did not bother to come up with. The two teenagers walked up to the rundown porch of the falling-down house. At the corner post, which had been lifted off its bottom block by the settling of said abode, the nerd hesitated. You're scared chicken, aren't you? No, for there's nothing to be scared of. It's not like I actually believe in ghosts. <laughs> then why in the world did you agree to come to a haunted house? I'm conducting an experiment. You, my more credulous friend, are the test subject, while I <laughs> am the control group. Man. You got a knack for turning even the most exhilarating of life experiences into making you feel like you ought to take a nice long nap. With that, the boys dared to pass through the sagging threshold of the front entryway of the house. No, we won't follow them in this time. Let them have their fun. We can wait. Oh, it won't take long. Not tonight. They are eager tonight. The things inside. Eager to escape the prison of the dead. <laughs> Silly boys. They are not prepared for what they shall find. Wait. Listen. Did they see them so soon? The owners. The creatures with the deed. The deed and the dead. Why, they must have. Hear them running. Hear them jumping. Hear them stubbing their toes in their haste. See how they flee. <laughs> That was, that was the most horrible thing I've ever seen. Boy, I wouldn't want the terribleness we just experienced to even be described aloud. Not to my own worst enemy. Yeah, because it was, it was too horrible, right? Not because the hypothetical narrator isn't very good at describing things. With that necessary and not in any way defensive about my shortcomings dialogue ended, the boys continued to run towards the relative safety of the pickup truck. In mere moments, they were inside, and the truck was careening back down the hill to the highway. They left the community of Hamtown in a hurry. But their flight was far from unseen. From the porch of the house watched two beings. Notice I did not say human beings. Unearthly ones. Unnatural monsters. Really sinister and stuff. One was the figure of a drooling old maniac with a blood-stained axe. It was the ghost of old man Young. The other, according to legend, his first victim, a woman all in white. It was a little unclear whether she was supposed to be his daughter or his wife, but either way, it cut off her head. Her very pretty head, with hair as blonde as spiderwebs. Dyed blonde. She dyed blonde because her spiderweb-like hair was dyed blonde when she died. Let's move on. With this night's scaring... Our fifty-year experiment is complete. With that, the ghost floated backwards through the very walls of the house into the parlor. Creepy. There they reached down to turn invisible nodules located at their hips.
Their very bodies shimmered as their shape-shifting devices switched from on to resting. In place of their ghostly but clearly human body types from before, they now stood revealed as green-skinned alien creatures with oval torsos and spindly, frankly ridiculous legs. The aliens spoke not through mouths, which they did not have, but rather through slits on their necks, which were definitely there. We have long studied fear and the human being. With such information as we have acquired, we shall in due time move on to phase two of our master plan. The total invasion of the planet Earth. These humans have too long feared the ghosts of the past. Soon we shall show them the terrors of tomorrow. The aliens turned to face the ancient chimney. The one who had posed all these years as old man young pushed a secret button on its mantle. Little could any human suspect that this pitiful, broken-down fireplace hid the entry passage hatch to a hypermodern spacecraft vessel. Crawling, they made their way into the craft's compact cockpit and strapped themselves in. We shall return, and when we do, it will be with an unstoppable force from the stars. Wolfmen, vampires, creatures from lagoons of various colors, all will cower before our disguises. And don't forget ray guns. Also those. The pilot turned the necessary dials. The very earth at the corner of the old young house shifted as an obelisk within the chimney attached to a metal spherical body buried below ground broke free. The rocket rose into the night sky over the community of Hamtown, and no one there witnessed the alien vessel pass, or else they just never thereafter cared to admit it. The next day, all that anyone knew for sure, excepting two teenage boys I never bothered to tell you the names of, was that the chimney of the old house had finally caved in. But you and I know better, don't we? Yes, we are well aware that a pair of extraterrestrial agents left this planet that night in search of their horrid home. We have heard in the aliens' own words their sinister agenda. There is no doubt that when they touch down and consult their space masters, a terrible chain of events will be set in motion. But that won't be for some time now. I've done the math. Their home planet is 32 Earth years away. One must add in another 32 Earth years for the return trip. That means we don't really have to worry about alien space ghouls destroying the planet Earth until, let's see, at least the year 2021. Opalacha is written and produced by Lee Blevins, co-produced by Kate Applegate, theme music by Jonathan Modaf. Centennial of Creepiness consisted of three segments. A Solitary Grave starred Kate Applegate as Laney and Del Froley with myself as Joe. Five More Fingers starred Jeremiah Martin as Roy Wells and Travis Hall as The Stranger with a special guest appearance by Mike Fields as Fred. The Haunted House Experiment starred June Dempsey as The Woman in White, Ken Fletcher as Tough Guy, Josh Gibson as Nerd, and Alex Parkansky as Old Man Young. Tune in next month for a pair of hillbilly crime stories in The Desperate and The Doomed. <laughs>